We truly can't underestimate the fact that we're family and the fact that we need each other and the fact that if we don't have each other, it changes our lives, right? We're never intended to go through things alone. We are intended to come together to support, to care in ways that God leads all of us together. Well, this morning we are going to talk about two things. First of all, we're going to talk about what not to do with your money. I mean, there's all kind of people who have plans for your money, right? And today we're going to talk about what not to do with your money and the influence that our finances give. And secondly, we're going to talk about how the spiritually wise think and act when it comes to the resources, the wealth, the influence that God has entrusted to us. So first open your Bibles to James chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verse 1 to 6. And then the latter part of the message, we're going to switch over to 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 to 19. So these are the two passages we're going to be looking at and asking God to give us direction to this morning. Well, in the first six verses of chapter 5 of James, James is bringing our attention to the fact that it is possible for us to have our financial priorities mixed up. It's possible for us to value what's not important and to not value what is important when it comes to our money. And sometimes we have to rethink what is really important. And sometimes, as Bill has shared and others will share, that our circumstances and our view of life will determine what's important. W.E. Sangster tells the story of a woman who was on the Titanic. And the ship had already begun to sunk and sh- sink, and she was seated in a lifeboat that was about to drop into the Atlantic Ocean. Well, she thought of something that she believed she needed from the room she had rented, so she asked the man who was in charge of the lifeboat if she could go get it. And he said, you can go get it, but if you take too long, we're not going to be able to wait for you. Well, she ran across the deck and that was already slanted at a dangerous angle. She got into her stateroom. She pulled aside, pushed aside her jewelry and reached above her bed and retrieved three small oranges and hurried, hurriedly made her way back to the lifeboat. She did not take her diamonds. She did not grab her wallet. She did not make sure that her shoes matched the rest of her outfit because those items were of no value to her in the situation that she was in. What she needed now with some food. Friends, I believe that it is so possible, especially in the area of our money, to think with a temporary perspective rather than an eternal perspective. And I believe one of the things that causes us the most insecurity is when we feel that we don't have enough financial resources or security to enable us to live life and be secure today. And these verses, what we're looking at today, challenges us to do a perspective and a value change. Much of of what James is telling us in these verses is that we do not always have a clear picture of what matters and what's important. And he's giving us a direct and stern warning concerning our tendency to put our confidence, to put our trust in money and material objects. He begins chapter 5 with these words. And this, the commentators I, I read as well as if you read the book, said these are some of the most sternest words, maybe apart from Galatians 3, that you will read in all of the Bible. He says, come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Now, he is talking, it is believed at this point in James, he is switching from talking to believers to talk about talking to people who don't know Jesus as Lord and Savior. They do not have a personal relationship with God. They've chosen to do life on their own. And the warning is clear. You who are rich and depending on yourself and on what you have accumulated to be, take care of you, he says, count on this. 
He says, there is misery coming into your life. Now, even though he is addressing those individuals who do not know Christ, there are some pretty significant lessons for us here today who have a relationship with Jesus. And I want to share with you this morning four things we are not to do with our money. Four things that you and I are not to do with our money. Number one, from verses two and three, we are not to trust our wealth more than we trust God. Verses 2 and 3 say, Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. He hasn't quit speaking sternly, has he? During the time this was written, there were three ways that people laid up wealth. First, there was the accumulation of grain. The more grain they had, the wealthier they were. And James says that in the end, your grain is the grain that you held on to, the grain that you hoarded, the grain that you thought you were going to have security in, that grain will rot. The second way wealth was seen was in the clothes. People, if they were wealthy, wore elaborate outer garments as a symbol of the wealth they had. And James is saying, if you hold on to these, if you do not consider the eternity, that what the clothes you have, the moths are going to eat them up. The third way wealth was built up was by, was by buying gold and silver. And it was believed at that point that gold and silver was not pure. There were impurities in that gold and silver. And he says the evidence that you stored up too much is that the gold and silver, the impurities, not only of the gold, is evidence of the impurities of your motives, and that gold is going to rust. In the end, there will be judgment. Now, here's the question for you and I looking at this passage. The question for num point number one is this, how much of my security comes from what I have and own? Just think about that for a moment. How much of my personal security comes from what I have and what I own? How much does my security depend on the balance in my checkbook? How much does it depend on the possessions I have? See, because we live in the world we live in, in the culture we live in, our tendency is to, determine, is to determine our security by how much we have or are promised. And Jesus challenges us, and James is challenging us, to rethink that perspective. That even though we live in this world, we are not living for this world. Let me repeat that. Even though we live in this world, we are not to live for this world. And friends, if you are like me, that is a difficult transition to make. It is difficult to trust that God is going to take care of every one of our needs. But I can guarantee you this, that if we had the time this morning to give an opportunity for testimonies of how God has been financially faithful, we could probably fill the rest of the hour. Amen? Amen. We could do that, but our tendency is to say, my security depends on how much I have. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul states that we as followers of Christ are not citizens of this world, and we are waiting for Jesus to return to take us to our true home. So what do we do? We immerse ourselves in anything and everything that affirms our spiritual heritage, our spiritual roots, and strengthens our relationship with Jesus. Because this is it, friends. The more you know Jesus, the more you trust in him, the more you grow in that relationship, the more you're going to believe and understand and see that he will take care of you. Romans 12:2 tells us that we are transformed by the renewing of our minds. To renew is to return to our true identity, to be filled with God's Word, to be encouraged through God-focused interaction with other Christians, and to be attentive to the direction and conviction of God's Spirit within us. When we are attentive, when we are in God's Word, when we are in interaction with others, slowly and as we talk about how, how God's Word applies to our world today, what happens? We are transformed in how we think. 
To the degree that we don't have truth in our life, to that degree we will maintain a worldly view of security. Day by day, friends, we are being influenced by worldly value systems. And we are to switch that around to make sure that how we are influenced by a godly world, godly world's view is greater than the worldview that we're hearing every day. See, what we put our security in, friends, matters. Amen? What we depend on matters. There was a man who was needing to make some repairs on his roof, and in order to be safe, he decided to secure himself with a rope to something on the ground. So he got a rope, he tied it around his waist, he pulled it tight, climbed to the top of the roof, to the side of the roof that he was working on, through the other part of the roof, over the top of the roof, through his son down below, a young boy. And he said, would you tie this on to the tree that is secure, to the tree over there, so that I can be secure? Well, the son looked at the tree and decided that it was not big enough, so he tied, the, he tied the rope instead to the bumper of the car. Well, the boy's mom was in the house and realized that she needed to get something for the store. Got in the store, backed up, and that man got the ride of his life. See, friends, it is important what our security is tied to. And this is what is so amazing about God, friends. Our Heavenly Father loves you and me so much that He wants to teach us over and over again that He is, worth, he is, he is worthy of our trust. He will keep us secure. And friends, we know this about God. We know that He is a God. Does God change? Never changes. He is absolutely dependable. He is absolutely trustworthy. You absolutely can depend on Him, and we need to tie our security, and our thinking to Him. The second thing we're not to do with our money is we're not to withhold it from others, to withhold from others what they're due. Verses, James 4 from verse 5, or chapter 5, says this, Behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which kept you back, which you kept back by fraud are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Here James is saying that the rich in an, in an ability, in a way of trying to keep their earthly resources as long as they possibly can, refused, were not paying the people they hired to harvest their crops. Now in biblical times, workers were often paid every day. And if they were not paid every day, there was not money to buy food for that day. So the rich few person's refusal to pay what they, these individuals had earned had a very significant impact on the worker and his families. And it said that their cries, the outpouring of their emotion, because of the fraud of the rich people, not only was an expression of their own agony when they couldn't feed their families, but it also reached the ears of God Almighty. And you know what that means. God cares for the poor, He cares for justice, and He will bring retribution on those who are not fair financially. Now the implication is that God hears the cries and sees the greed and injustice done by the landowner and He will intervene. intervene. So how does that apply to us? How many of you here like to get a deal? Anybody? I love to get deals. I know where the deals are in at least places. Because I eat out regularly on church expense, I, I value the money that's given, so I know the ch cheapest places to go. I like to get a deal. But there can be a problem with getting a deal as, as long as we are not using our position and power to pay someone less than is fair or is deserved. No bargain is worth cheating or begrudging or denier, denying someone the fair price for what they're selling or for the wages they are offering. Years ago, unions were established to make sure that fair wages and safe working conditions would be the norm. And today, you and I are wise to treat those who are serving us in a way 
that is a good representation of our position as being Christians. I read uh, on the internet on Fox News last week about a man and his wife who went to a restaurant, and as soon as they sat down to eat, he put five $1 bills on the table. And of course, the waitress, when she came to the table, noticed those $1 bills, and she forgot to uh, bring him bread, so he took one of the $5 bill, one of the $1 bills away. She did something else and that was beyond the call of what was normal, and he put one of the, that one, five, one $1 bill back on the stack. And it was interesting how many negative comments he got and should have got for belittling, for the behavior that was belittling to the waitress and condemning, in a sense, a judgmental attitude. I will pay you only if you're worth it, not because of the value you have as an individual and the needs that you might have. Friends, we are to be known for our generosity and for our kindness, not for being, not for minimizing the value of someone who is in our service. So here's the question. Do I drive a hard deal or minimize the value of others and by doing so cheat them out of what is rightfully theirs? Number three, we are not to live in abundance while others are in greed. Verse 5 says, you have lived on earth in luxury and in self-indulgence, and you have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. Now, what is James responding to here? The landowners had far more than they needed, and those they hired were literally living on day-to-day wages. The self-indulgence referred to in James is comparable to the prodigal son who went to a foreign country and there he wastefully spent or squandered his money, spending it foolishly and extravagantly on things that he didn't even need. And it's important to note here that, that nowhere in Scripture does God ever say that being rich or having abundance of things is sin or wrong. But over and over again, the Bible speaks about the importance of taking care of the poor, the significance of compassion and mercy, and that to to whom much is given, much is required. We are to be kind. We are to be examples of generosity, examples of kindness. You've probably heard the story of the pastor who was talking to a farmer, to a farmer friend of his, and he asked the farmer, he said, if you had 100 horses, would you give me 50 of them? And the farmer said, well, pastor, of course I'd give you the 50 horses if I had 100. He said, pa- he, the pastor then said, he said, well, if you had 100 cows, would you give me 50 of them? And the farmer again said, pastor, you know if I had 50, 100 cows, I'd give you 50 of them. And then the pastor asked this question. He said, if you had two pigs, would you give me, would you give me one? Now cut that out, the farmers responded. You know I have two pigs. See, some of us grow up with a mental mentality, and I grew up with a mentality that we'll never have enough. And this mindset can destroy a willingness to be generous, the willingness to be generous that God wants to develop within us. And here's the question. Are there needs I could meet, but I'm not willing? Are there needs that I'm aware of that I could meet, but I am not willing to do so? You know, in the bulletin today on the back page, there is a, uh, some information about Operation Christmas Child. And First Baptist has supported this mission for a long time. And our White Cross ladies had the vision and the courage to order 400 soccer balls and 400 pumps. And uh, if you've ever known what the big box is, if you walked by my office and saw big boxes, they used to be soccer balls, now they're pumps. And uh, the ladies said, you know, they found out from other individuals that the one thing the kids in other countries really enjoy 
is a soccer ball that they can play with. And I appreciate what Sam did, said as far as writing scripture verses. But wouldn't it be great that when we, if we left here today that every one of those soccer balls was paid for? There's, there, each, there's 400 soccer balls with a pump. Each one of those costs $10,000, which is a total of 4,000 bucks. You know what I believe? I believe we have the resources here today to take care of that and to bless kids who, we, who don't have toys, who don't have the very basics of life that, that our kids have, that we have. So I just encourage you, when it gets, are there needs that I could meet, but I am, am I willing? This would be a place maybe for us to start as a church and say, yeah, well, I'm not gonna miss 10 bucks. I'm not gonna miss 20 bucks. And that 20 bucks can be multiplied and a real blessing to some children in a faraway country. Number four, we are not to use our privileged position, our influence against others. Verse six says, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. In this verse, James is addressing the reality that the poor workers were unable to match the influence and the authority that comes with wealth that the rich people had. And the last statement reveals the truth. He says, he does not resist you. He can't resist them. And we've heard about social injustice all across our world and about how the poor, because they are not able to represent themselves, are often taken advantage of or often put in positions which really minimizes their lifestyle. We can live in a hard, we live in a hard and calculated world where life and its advantages are not freely distributed or fairly distributed. Simply because we live in North America affords us privileges and opportunities that many and other countries can't even imagine having. And here James is saying, never let our position of wealth put us in a place where we raise ourselves against a higher than the value of another person. Do we heap guilt upon ourselves because of what we have? That is not the correct thing to do. But we are to live in an understanding how blessed and privileged we are and be ready and willing to help as we are directed and given the opportunity and to care for the poor, the widows, and the orphans. So the question here this morning is, do I ever use my, my position, my influence, to gain an unfair advantage, either financially or simply against another person? And as I thought about this week, about this principle this week, I believe that is far easier to do than we can ever imagine. We do it, but we don't define it that way within our lives. God directs us so that our lives are examples of kindness, generosity, and care, not hoarding, but saying, God, what I have is yours. Would you direct me concerning how to use it so that when I get to heaven, that the kingdom of heaven, I might have treasures laid up, stored up for me there. Now, before we get into the second session, second section, let me tell you a story about someone who struggled. The story of Bertha Adams. Bertha was 71 years old when she died, and she died alone in West Palm Beach, Florida on Easter Sunday in 1976. The coroner reported that she died of malnutrition. After a wasting away to 50 pounds, her body was unable to sustain itself. Well, when the authorities made their preliminary investigation on her home, they described it as a pig pen, the biggest mess you can imagine. Bertha had begged for food from her neighbors and gotten clothes from the Salvation Army. In the midst of all her disheveled belongings, two keys were found. The keys led officials to, a safety, to safety deposit boxes in two separate banks. 
The first box contained over 700 AT&T stock certificates, plus hundreds of dollars of other certificates and cash amounting to over $200,000. The second box had no certificates, but currency, bills, $600,000 to be exact. Bertha had over $1 million, and yet she lived the life of one who was absolutely destitute, dying of malnutrition because she would not take money out of her accounts even to feed herself. She never really lived to her potential. Her wealth did her no good, nor did it do anyone else any good. She, how she could have lived was lost. So that begs the question, how can we live? How are we to live? 1 Timothy 6, 17 to 19, if you have your Bibles, flip them over to the, open to that passage. The spiritually wise, number one, remain humble, the first part of verse 17, where Paul says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty. Now, haughty is a, quite a word, and basically it means not to be proud, snobbish, or arrogant, the opposite of humble. To be humble, one must see all that God has done for him or her, and in gratitude, form an opinion of themselves that includes the grace they have received from God. And friends, once we put God's grace and we begin to see ourselves based on what God's done in our life, then we will see what God has made us rather than what we have made ourselves, and that will lead us to a place of humility. We refuse to be arrogant, we remember our need, and we submit to God and as other and others as a response to the grace we've received. See, humility is the first characteristic of generosity. See, if we are not humble, we think that everything we have is something that we have done on our own. And I don't doubt that many of you here have made good decisions. You've put things away in a good way. But the Bible is clear in saying all good gifts come from God above. And in the person who is humble says, God, I recognize that everything I have has come to me as a gift from you. So the first thing we do, the spiritually wise remain humble. The second thing, they trust in God, not wealth. 1 Timothy 16, 6, verse 17b. And the last part of verse 17 says, set our hope, we are to set our hopes, we are, we are not to set our hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Now, friends, this is a decision we make. It is so easy to trust in what, in what we have or even what we hope or plan to have. And Paul is saying the one who is spiritually astute continues to remind themselves to trust and be focused on God and not to be deceived into thinking that worldly wealth in and of itself provi provides lasting security. So you, we can come and we say, okay, Barry, that's fine to know, but how do we do it? How do we learn to trust God in every area of our life? How do we learn to trust Him with our finances so that our trust moves from ourself to God, who is our Father, who is our Creator, who is our Sustainer? Tim Hansel describes trusting the, the, the progression of trusting in God this way. He says this, At first I saw God as my observer, my judge, keeping track of the things I did wrong, so to know whether I merited heaven or hell when I die. He was out there, sort of like a president. I recognized his picture when I saw it, but I really didn't know him. But later when I met Christ, it seemed as though life were rather like a bike ride, but it was a tandem bike, and Christ was in the back helping me pedal. I don't know just when it was that he suggested we change places, but life has not been the same since. When I had control, I knew the way, and it was rather boring, but predictable. It was the shortest distance between two points. But when he took the lead, he knew delightful long cuts up mountains and through rocky places. 
and at breakneck speeds. It was all I could do to hang on, even though it looked like madness. He said, pedal. I worried and was anxious and asked, when are you t where are you taking me? He laughed and didn't answer, and I started to learn to trust. I forgot my boring life and entered it into the adventure, and when I'd say I'm scared, he'd lean back and touch my hand. He took me to people with gifts that I needed, gifts of healing, acceptance, and joy. They gave me their gifts to take on my journey, our journey, my Lord's and mine. And we were off again, and then he would say, give the gifts away. They're extra baggage, too much weight, so I did. I gave the gifts to the people we met and found out that in giving, I received, and still our burden was light. I did not trust him at first. I, in, I did not trust him at first to be in control of my life. I thought he'd wreck it, but he knows bike secrets, how to make it bend and take sharp corners, jump to clear high rocks, and fly to short and scary passages. And I'm learning to shut up and pedal in the strangest places. I'm beginning to enjoy the view and the cool breezes on my face with my constant companion, Christ. And when I'm sure I just can't do it anymore, he smiles and says, just pedal. See, the journey that Christ will take us on, friends, will be much more interesting and eternally significant than anything we could do on our own. Number three, the spiritually wise are generous and faithful. Verse 18 says, they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. What a list to remember. We are to do good. In other words, we are to be rich in good words. There, we are to have an abundance of good works stored up in advance in heaven. We are to be generous, not miserly. We are to say, if there's a need, God, would you want me to meet it? And if he wants us to meet it, we respond knowing that he is the one caring for us. When we are not only to be generous, but we are to be ready to share. Here, you take this. Here, here help. Maybe this would be of advantage to you. The word ready triggers or refers to being prepared to share, looking for an opportunity, having your finger on the trigger, ready to let loose the generosity that God has placed in your life. Someone once said this, do your giving while you're living, then you're knowing where it's going. And friends, sometimes that's what we want to do. do we, are we going to leave a legacy where it stays there? Or are we going to leave a legacy where we can see what God has done and what he, how he has used the resources he's given us. Number four, the spiritually wise live for what truly matters. Verse 19, storing up for themselves treasures as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. I love what it says, that last part of verse 19, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. It goes back to the question, how do we really live? What does really living mean? What is truly living life? Friends, we can live life at a number two level or a number eight or nine or ten level. And God promises us an abundant life. Paul is saying that if you and I really want to live, to remain and have a life that God has for us, we need to remain humble. We need to trust in God, not in money. We need to be generous and faithful and have an abundance of good works stored up in heaven. What do you think when you hear these names? Abraham Lincoln. William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army. Martin Luther, Florence Nightingale, the one who began nursing. Albert Einstein, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Mother Teresa, Billy Graham. These are all people who left a legacy when they died. And every day, you and I are writing our legacy. We are leaving a mark on those who know and love us 
and probably on many others. Legacies always seem to involve risk, faith, determination, persistence, and a desire to leave with more than you came with. What am I leaving? What are you leaving? What will people say about me? What will they say about you after we are gone? Today and tomorrow and in every day that follows, may we choose to live in ways that will leave a legacy of generosity and kindness and goodness and love that will impact the lives of others. May it be said of each of us that we lived for what really matters, that we lived for the glory of God alone. Would you stand with me as we close this morning in prayer? Father God, it is so easy it is so easy for, you, for all of us to get caught up in the security that comes